This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Welcome back. Last week, we heard from Gene Becker. There are few people on Earth who knew former President George H.W. Bush and former First Lady Barbara Bush better than Gene. And she shares some excellent advice imparted to her over the years by the 41 family. One of my favorite pieces of advice she shared was to be willing to stand your ground once in a while. This week, my guest is someone who has had to stand her ground a time or two. And a lot of the time, it was on the world stage. I can point to one specific thing my dad did with me that helped me have the career I have today. When I was in third grade, he assigned me to read the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post every day before he got home from work. I loved assignments. I had to choose two articles to discuss with him before dinner. He would ask me lots of questions about why I made my selections, what I thought of the stories, and then he'd debate other points of view that should be considered. Of all the things that helped in the communications business, this was probably the most important. For those of you who are contemplating or experiencing parenthood, I'd say it's something worth considering, even in our digital age. Condoleezza Rice is the former U.S. Secretary of State, the first African-American woman to fill that title. She also served as a national security advisor, both of those roles under President George W. Bush. Condi has written several books and now serves as the director of the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. Most importantly, she is a daughter, and today we'll focus on how her father influenced her life and shaped her into the woman she is today. Secretary Rice, although I know you asked me to call you Condi, I have a hard time doing that because of the respect, <laughs> um, but I'll try. Um, Condi, tell us about your father's childhood, his upbringing. My dad uh, was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, he was born in 1923. Uh, so it was a pretty tough time to be black in Louisiana, but he came from a very uh, stable family. His father was a Presbyterian minister and a school principal. He had actually managed to get himself college educated by going to Little Stillman College and promising to become a Presbyterian minister in exchange for a scholarship. So his father was uh, was educated and very bookish, you know, kind of an intellectual. Um, I'll tell you something about that in just a minute. His mom was a stay-at-home mom, but uh, you know, very much the kind of uh, uh, figure of strength and kept, got the family through the uh, 
through the depression in good shape. And, and then his sister, Teresa, was really, really a great student and eventually would end up with a PhD from the University of Wisconsin in Victorian literature. So he came from an unusual family, I guess, for that time where uh, education and intellect were really valued. As a matter of fact, um, on the day that I got my PhD, my father gave me six leather-bound gold-embossed books. And they were the works of Hugo, the works of Shakespeare. And I was told that these were books that my grandfather had bought at the height of the Great Depression. He paid $90 for them. My grandmother was furious because she was just trying to get the family through the depression, Mm -hmm. but he hung on to those books. And it just sort of showed how much um, the whole idea of study and intellect were at the center uh, of their lives as my father grew up. And then- you are born, and how do you think? How does he think about parenting you? Obviously, he he couldn't know well, that you would become Secretary of State and have all no, of these moments no. in history um, where you play a pivotal role. Um, but was there was there an approach he had early on with you that you can talk about? Well, I have to finish his story a little bit because then he would go on to college and seminary, do a master's in divinity and uh, at Johnson C. Smith University in North Carolina, which is historically black college. But then he'd move to Birmingham, Alabama, where he would meet Angelina Ray, my mother. Uh, they were both teaching at uh, Fairfield Industrial High School. So the first hint that I had that my father was really a feminist was, was many years later I asked him the following question. Uh, Alabama had a, a, Birmingham had a nepotism law. So once my parents were married, they couldn't teach in the same school. And so I said to my father, well, daddy, why did you leave? Because he left and went to teach in another district. He said, well, because your mother was there first. So it would never have occurred to him that somehow her career was less important than his. And from the day I was born, uh, I'm told that he thought I could do anything. I was an only child. Um, And so I was uh, raised to believe I could do anything. Uh, It was music with my mother, with my father. It was history and sports. He was also a a football player in his earlier days. He was a huge man, the 6'3", very imposing figure. Um, And he taught me all about sports from the age of three. I can remember Dana sitting there in front of the the TV with him, and uh, he would say, Condoleezza, what are they doing now? Oh, daddy, that's a trap block. So he really um, encouraged my love of sports. But most importantly, uh, my parents didn't have that sense of role differentiation. Mother had a role. Daddy had a role. They both pulled their weight. They were both um, intellectuals, both professionals. And uh, he sort of passed that on to me. Tell me a little bit about that civil rights movement and his um, and your mother's, of course, um, thinking at that time. I was struck by one of the things that you said in your book that um, in that you said I would I would even say that my parents and their friends in our community thought of education as kind of an armor against racism. If you were well educated and you spoke well, then there was only so much they could do to you. Right. 
education was kind of the holy grail. You know, it was faith, family, and education in my little community in Birmingham. Uh, It was a community that I think everybody taught school. Then I think there was one lawyer and one one doctor and everybody else taught school. And so education was uh, supposed to be your way of making sure that segregation didn't hold you back. Remember, this is segregated Birmingham, Alabama. You can't go to a movie theater. You can't go to a restaurant. Uh, There are terrible images of uh, Black people everywhere. But in our little community, they were determined that their children were not going to be held hostage to that. And so they had really these these three mantras. Uh, One was, you have to be twice as good. Now, this wasn't said as a matter of debate. It was said as a matter of fact. And if you were twice as good, then you would beat them at their own game. So we went around trying to be twice as good twice as confident because we work twice as hard. They said there are no victims. Uh, You may not be able to control your circumstances, but you can control your response to your circumstances. And the minute you think of yourself as a victim, you have given control of your life to somebody else. And then one that my father, um, I remember it was his and his alone. We'd actually uh, moved from that little segregated community in Birmingham a uh, civil rights movement had come along. We'd gone to Tuscaloosa, where my dad was dean of students at Stillman College, and historically black college. And then um, he decided he wanted to get a master's degree in uh, student personnel administration so he could do college work. That's what took us to Denver. Uh, within a, a reasonable period of time, he was offered a job at the University of Denver. We stayed in Denver. Now, you might think this is a kind of odd circumstance. I've grown up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama. Race is everything and race is nothing because the races are so segregated. We go to Denver. I'm the, the uh, you know, segregated schools in Birmingham. I'm the one of three black women at St. Mary's Academy, a college prep school. And I come home one day and uh, somebody's not wanted to sit next to me because I'm black. This is in Denver. My father says, you know, that's just fine as long as they move. So he was saying to me, don't let somebody else's prejudice be your problem. It's their problem. Don't let them make you feel like less of a person because they don't react well to you. Just ignore them. And I kind of grew up with that sense of armor, as you will, because my parents and you know my mother and father never thought that I was going to grow up in a world without prejudice. It was unimaginable to them. I bet. There's a, just one other part on this because I, you've said this. Um, I have it written down here. You said about the civil rights marches. Um, my father was very clear about why he wouldn't march. My dad was not someone who would, who you would strike with a billy club and he wouldn't strike back. It just wasn't in him. And can you recall how you remember your parents' conversation about that? I do. I remember it uh, like it was yesterday because my, my parents, uh, my mother was a little bit fiery and she would raise her voice. My father rarely raised his voice, uh, but he could be very strong. And I was standing in my little bedroom um, and it was the height of the civil rights marches in 1963. And my mother asked my father, well, are you going to go and join Reverend King and the marchers and many of your students are out there? And my father said, I'm not going out there because uh, if somebody, one of those policemen tries to hit me with a billy club, I'm going to try to kill him. And then he's going to kill me. And my daughter is going to be an orphan. 
my father um, and my mother did a lot to support uh, the marches and the students, and we certainly joined in boycotts and the like. But you had to know my father. He uh, was a, a personality uh, who you didn't cross him. Uh, he he just had that kind of strength, and and he was a bit drawn, frankly. Uh, to the more aggressive side of the Black Power movement. Uh, one of his good friends, believe it or not, was Stokely Carmichael, uh, who he invited to the university, uh, to Stillman College in uh, 1967 to speak, uh, invited him to Denver later on to speak, because there was something in my father that was defiant about racism and race. And he just couldn't imagine uh, being uh, submissive in some senses, a little bit how he saw it. Um, he also, and I, I've told this story in the book too, he and his friends um, formed um, a, a little militia because there were white night riders in the 60s. They would come through black communities, you know, firing into the air, mm. kind of Bucks Klan types. And my father and his friends formed this little militia that would sit at the head of the cul-de-sac all night long with their guns in their hands. And Dana, I've always said, I think it's why I'm such a strong Second Amendment uh, advocate, because um, I the police weren't going to protect that community. So my, my father protected the community. And I guess I often think that if there had been registration of guns, uh, Bull Connor would have, uh, the, the police commissioner in Birmingham would have uh, picked them all up. Mm -hmm. So I have a kind of unusual uh, relationship to the Second Amendment. Wait right there. We'll have more next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's fast forward. Then how proud was he of you when you work in the uh, Bush 41 administration? Oh, my father was thrilled uh, when I went to work for uh, George H.W. Bush. He loved George H.W. Bush. Remember, my father was a Republican. Um, and the reason he was a Republican was that when it was hard to vote in, in Birmingham um, and he was given a poll test, you know, how many beans are in this jar? One of his elders in the church said, Reverend, I'll show you how to get registered. You go down there and you tell that that clerk that you're a Republican because they're not many and she'll register you. And sure enough, he was. So he remained a Republican his entire life, voted Republican his entire life. So here I was about to serve George H.W. Bush. And uh, I was able to, my mother had already passed um, in 1985. My father had moved to California uh, to be close to me. And I was able to take him to the White House and, and have him have a tour of the West Wing. And President George H.W. took a picture with him. He was, he was very, very proud of that time. And then in in 2000, December of 2000, your, your father passed away, but he knew you were going to be the national security advisor for President George W. Bush. Yes, he had fallen ill in February of 2000 um, with a, a, a heart failure and a, an anoxic brain injury, which meant that he didn't have 
total clarity on what was going on around him. But um, he knew that I was going to, that I was working for George W. Bush, who he also loved, by the way. And when uh, George W. Bush came out here to campaign in 1999, uh, my father was right there and he, he was, he took a picture with George W. Bush. So he was very proud of that. And then when he fell ill, of course, it wasn't totally clear, but he knew that I had been named national security advisor. And it's actually kind of a, a poignant story because um, I had told President George W. Bush, I can't go to Washington. I can't leave my father. Um, he, he's seriously ill and debilitated. And so I'll come, I'll come later. And President Bush said, you know, or President-elect Bush said, no, we'll figure it out. You know, you can fly home uh, when you need to. But California is a long way from Washington, D.C. And somehow, uh, Dana, I think my father sensed this. And he died on Christmas Eve of 2000. Mm. And a part of me always thought that it was just like John Wesley Rice Jr. to release me that way. And to say, you go do what you have to do. Mm. And I'm going to the Lord. And so that was really a great act of love. And I truly believe that's what happened. How beautiful. You um, were a great mentor to many of us in the administration. Um, I think um, people would put you at the top of the list as a number one, the best role model for us to follow. And I wonder, as you teach now, what would you advise some um, either students or parents or fathers who are doing this around Father's Day um, that they could help instill in their girls as they're growing up so that they could have... Uh, I'm not going to say follow in your footsteps to be national security advisor, but the kind of confidence and success and fear, fearlessness um, that you have lived with. I would go right back to John Wesley Rice Jr. and to my mother, who just didn't let me see boundary about see uh, that my horizons were limited in any way. They just believed I could do anything, and so I believed I could do anything. But they also had high expectations. And I tell parents today, uh, don't dumb down your expectations for your kids, trying to make them feel better. We do too much of that in the schools, too much of that in the home. Uh, you know, I played the piano. Uh, nobody ever said to me, oh, isn't that cute that she's making all of those mistakes? No, you're supposed to practice until you're good at it. And so the sense of high expectation uh, from them, and therefore I had higher expectations for myself than anyone could ever have. I think high expectations are really important, but you do it with love. Um, I also knew that if I failed at something, uh, it didn't matter because the love was unconditional. So high expectations married with unconditional love is just an amazing, amazing uh, formula for success. Um, and then finally, I would say that my, my parents, uh, again, as a girl, uh, I didn't think that there were things girls were not supposed to do. I thought that I could do what I wanted to do. I also think that father-daughter is just so important in teaching girls um, how they are to be treated and how they are to be respected by the men around them whether in social conditions or in professional conditions. And since my father always insisted that I was going to be treated with respect, uh, I've grown up assuming 
and believing that I ought to be treated with respect. Um, my parents tried to give me leadership possibilities. Dana, I was the president of the family at age four. <laughs> uh, and it had real responsibilities. You know, you had to call a meeting to decide what time we were leaving for Denver, what color were we going to paint the living room. And so the sense of you can be uh, really uh, an impactful person, uh, they really, they really passed that on to me too. One of my favorite stories from the White House years that I like to tell in terms of uh, women in the workforce and especially in, in the White House was, I don't know if you'll remember this, you might, um, uh, the Israelis were coming to visit uh, the president. It wasn't the leader, but um, representatives. And they believed that there was some sort of daylight between you and President Bush. Yes. And you told him that in the pre-brief. And I will never forget that meeting and watching President Bush defend you. I wanted yes. to, I sat quietly, but oh, did I want to cheer. He was also, uh, you know, you're talking about dads. And I, I have a feeling that the reason that Barbara and Jenna are such strong uh, women is in part, they had a great dad in that regard, too. And you know how much uh, President Bush respected women, mm -hmm. you, know, you and and Margaret Spellings and Karen Hughes. I mean, we were part of the team. I remember somebody saying in another administration, as a woman, I didn't feel listened to. And that was just so not my experience in, uh, in the administration, because you're right, he was going to stand up. Uh, for his his people, and certainly in that meeting with the Israelis, actually, I think Dana, I think the Prime Minister was there. Was it? Yeah. And uh, there had been some reports of daylight, and he just looked right at him and said, "Now, let me just be very clear. You know, when when Condoleezza Rice speaks, she speaks for me. So, end of story." You yeah, it was like end of meeting. See yourselves out. Yeah. I was like, "Wow." Right. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you to tell one final story because I imagine that your dad was smiling so much when you were sent to Russia to deliver a message to Putin. Yes. And if you could just tell everyone this story, and then I will let you go. But to me, your dad instilled this in you. And this is a moment where you could point to and say, he really set you on this path. That is so true. Well, I was sent to Russia. It was, things were getting pretty tense between Georgia and Russia. This is 2007. And, you know, they would actually invade in 2008. So things were pretty tense. The president says to me, you've got to go tell Putin that if anything happens with Georgia, it will really affect U.S.-Russian relations. He said, I want to deliver that message face to face. So I go. We're having a meeting about other things. Putin and uh, Sergei Lavrov are sitting on one sofa and they're facing Bill Burns, who was ambassador at the time, and me on the other sofa. And I said, um, Mr. President, President Bush wants me to tell you that if anything happens in, to Georgia, it will deeply affect U.S.-Russian relations. And Putin stood up and now he's sort of peering over me. Um, and I don't know where it came from, Dana. Maybe it was from John Rice. I stood up too. Now, Putin is not very tall. He's probably 5'7 on a good day. Uh, in hills, I'm closer to 5'10. So there I was standing, looking at him. And I think he was so shocked. He just backed off and sat down. But I thought, don't try to intimidate me. And uh, I think that was probably early, early instilled in me from a very, very strong, um, very strong parents, but particularly a very strong father who uh, I think was smiling down because he probably said, good for you, Condoleezza, you showed him. And he gave you some height. 
And he gave me some height. <laughs> and he was a six three. My mother was five three and a half. So <laughs> fortunately, I got a little of his height. You did. Um, this, I think that your um, message here for anyone listening, if you're um, a, a daughter or a father or a mother or you're, and you're listening to this, um, it's so inspiring and great advice as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great to be with you. Next week, we are diving deep on mentorship and finding the right role models in your life from two of my mentors who have been so influential in my life. My very first boss and mentor on Capitol Hill, Holly Probst, and Dame Ann Globe, who is a former nurse and founder of the Freedom from Fistula Foundation. Ann has been involved in the international charity Mercy Ships for decades. That's an organization very close to my heart. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.